1: Defence capability, defence capability. Why do we want a stronger defence capability? It is not, A, to propel towards conflict. It is not for warmongering purposes. It is not certainly because we want an arms race. It is to deter. And why is that important? Because that deterrence, our contribution to collective deterrence now in the region, is doing what? It's making adversaries, is to make them think twice about undermining international law undermining human rights, undermining
0: the trade and security frameworks that benefit Australia. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. Today in the PodCave we have Labor MP Peter Khalil, who is the Chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. I wanted to speak to him today because it's the 20-year anniversary of the Iraq war and his expertise before entering Parliament was and is security policy on Iraq. We'll also be discussing the AUKUS nuclear submarine acquisition, Julian Assange, and his committee's work on ideologically motivated violent extremism. Welcome, Peter. G'day, Paul. Thanks for having me. It is quite the cave in here. It's warm, too. <laughs> no, no one can hear you <laughs> scream, but... yeah. <laughs> So for, for people who may not know your uh, professional background, can can you explain, you know, where you were working when the Iraq war was declared and, and what your experience was th- through the war? Yeah, um, I was uh, I was a public servant with the Department of Defence at the time and um, I got
1: posted to Iraq in 2003. Um, I was with the International Policy Division at the time and I got posted to Iraq for about a year and, um, uh, you know... <laughs> it, even at the time, I was, uh, I was against the war. I thought it was a strategic um, uh, mistake. It ended up also being a humanitarian disaster. Um, and, you know, in, in public, I, I was on the record around that. But I think it's probably uh, important to point out that all the ADF personnel, defence officials, security officials, uh, diplomats who were posted, um, whether they agreed or didn't agree with the decision of the government of the day, they went and did their their work and they they, they fulfilled their obligations uh, in that respect. And and the work that I did was around rebuilding um, the security uh, services, but also working on the um, restructuring the public service, the the, um, National Security Committee of Cabinet, the cabinet structure. Um, So I worked with the new prime minister and the the ministers and so on. And also I did a fair bit of work on demobilising militias, which is not easy. If people know the history in Iraq, there was uh, a lot of conflict between various sectarian groups and militias, but I worked with the Kurds and the Shia militia and the Peshmerga and the Sunni tribal leaders um, uh, throughout my time there to try and get them to stop fighting each other um, and to join sort of official security services and and the army. Um, So it was, you know, it was a difficult time. um, But I think too, even those who uh, opposed the war and the decision to go to war um, once Saddam Hussein had been removed, there was an obligation on those coalition countries to help rebuild that country because they had been responsible for the removal of that regime. Um, and so that was a lot of the work that we did, you know, um,
0: in that context of actually rebuilding the, the, the structures, if you like, of, of a state. So um, no no sort of internal conflict for an opponent of, of the war to find themselves in, in, that, in that position then?
1: No. I mean, there's a lot of things that you do when you're a public servant that you don't agree with. Uh, that you might not agree as an individual with, um, you know, a decision of government, but um, you, you go ahead and... It's like a lawyer, right? Like, you know, you have to defend... <laughs> Defence lawyers are actually important in the system, even though they're defending sort of odious people or whatever. But I think the... I mean, the, I, I, there's been a lot of discussion this week about the decision the Labor opposition made at the time, which was a very brave decision by Simon Crean to oppose the war, but he still supported the ADF per- personnel came out. And I think that was a really significant moment where he said, you know, we oppose this intervention, this going to war, but we, we respect and support you as ADF personnel and, uh, and the sacrifice that you're making, the service that you're doing. And I think that was a pretty brave uh, step by Simon at the time as Labor leader.
0: What are the lessons from the Iraq war? And do you think Australia has learned them? Uh, yes well there's a number of them uh, I think
1: the uh, attempt to the attempts made to intervene in countries and shift them into a democratic system without having the the baseline structures in place and I what I mean by that is a democracy is not just an election democracy is much more than that it it involves civic society uh, having a really strong civic society a free press an independent judiciary Um checks and balances on on the executive and the power of the executive with the Parliament um, you know a, a system whereby you can root out corruption or uh, highlight or corruption accountability transparency um, and civilian control over the military which is a very important principle um, so democracy does just doesn't come when you go to a ballot box there's a whole s- ecosystem if you like underneath that and that that wasn't there. Frankly, in Iraq because they were under a dictatorship for a long time. Although having said that, there was a very well-educated, cosmopolitan uh, population um, that had been there uh, uh, over the the decades, um, and, a, and a great civilization and history. You know, the, the, this is Mesopotamia. Remember, so the cradle of civilization, Frankly, so this is not to say that the Iraqi people themselves were not capable of this. What I'm saying is that they were under dictatorship for a long time, and some of those. Baseline structures were not there, or had completely d- dissipated. Uh, there were patches of time where they had democratic uh, uh, governance and so on throughout the last century. So I think that's one of the big lessons, and and the interventions by the US and the West generally to try and push democracy, as as we all know, was very patchy at, at the at the best in in changing countries across the region. In fact, I think throughout for all what, the so-called Arab Spring, only a few countries have remained democratic out of that period. Lebanon's in a lot of trouble now. Iraq is still struggling, although it is still a nation state. It's still intact in that respect. We've seen what's happened with Afghanistan, for example. Um, So, and that I think has a lot to do with, um, I mean, the Americans, for all their good intentions, um, you know, just understanding that, you know, winning a war against a, a dictatorship, it doesn't mean you've won the peace. Um, and so that was really, and a lot of people died in that conflict. Um, but of course, a lot of people died um, from at the hands of insurgents and terrorists who uh, who killed Iraqi people because of their sectarian background. Whether if they were Shiite, uh, for example, a lot of the Sunni extremists killed them, Kurds, and so on. It was it's horrible. Uh, and war is horrible, and you don't go to war until unless it's absolutely necessary. And that's I think the other lesson, which um, I know this is a debate that that. Um, has been an ongoing one about what when we make a decision to send our forces to a conflict, how does that work?
0: Yes, yeah, so picking up on only going when it's absolutely necessary, and um, you mentioned at the start of your answer there checks and balances. Uh, would it have made a difference if Parliament had an input into the decision? Um, you know, last week Paul Keating credited Labor and Simon Crean for having got that big call right, but we know that, you know, John Howard and the coalition committed us to war mm. anyway. So, should Parliament have had input and would that have made a difference? So, this is a so, just take away the example. What we're looking at really is a question around how the
1: executive of the Parliament and what their responsibilities are in relation to each other and to the Australian people when it comes to de- the deployment of forces, our forces. Um, and that, as the, the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister have said, that is mo- the most serious uh, decision that any government can make to deploy forces to a to a conflict or to to to, to an operation. Um, and so the 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 power is invested in the executive, which is the the government. The executive has the power to make those decisions. Currently speaking, and there's a debate about whether the Parliament should have more more input into that. Um, there is some. There is actually a. Um, A a parliamentary inquiry into this very question um, with the Joint uh, Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Committee looking into the questions around war powers and and whether there should be more in the parliament. My own view on this, um, well, it's a bit complex because I think the parliament should have more say in in the strategic decisions we're making and the strategic choices. The question around deployments, though, is a difficult one because you don't want to um, have a situation where you're making it, at your pre-notifying around ADF deployment, there are security implications to that for the forces themselves that may compromise their safety, um, the, the personnel, the operational security, intelligence around it, that, that would have unintended consequences and kind of go contra to what you're trying to achieve if you're trying to, for example, uh, do an operation that, that quickly... Um, supports uh, a country in need, for example. I mean, I, I think of the example when I was working as a national security advisor, the foreign policy advisor for Kevin Rudd, when um, there was the assassination attempt on um, Ramos Horta and, and Gus Mal. Um You might recall, some listeners might recall that. That had to happen really immediately. There was no time for parliament to, to approve a deployment of forces to help evacuate effectively uh, the president and the prime minister in East Timor to safety... Uh, and, and take on those rebel forces in East Timor that were, you know, uh, um, you know attacking the government effectively. Um, and I remember I got the call at two or three in the morning from the, you know, the Defence Chief and the Prime Minister, everyone woke up and, you know, it, it, it's kind of you've got to make those decisions and, and the executive has the power to do that. And I think it would be, for example, that's a good example where if you had to wait to go to Parliament, when's the next sitting week? Mm-hmm. That's happening now. Um, and thankfully, um, Ramos Horta, his life was saved by that operation. He was evac to Darwin uh, and Guzmau as well. So that's just one example. Um, but I think the parliament, there is a space, I think, for the parliament to actually express their views when it comes to big strategic issues and, and choices and even even deployments on a sort of a, uh, a broader level. But I think the executive still maintains that power to make the decision. And after all,
0: it is the elected government of the day through the parliament, so it is representative of the people in that respect. It's- so not on the decision to go to war, but on strategic choices. So, uh, what about should there be more parliamentary input into decisions like AUKUS and the nuclear submarine acquisition? Because something that struck me with the with the trilateral announcement is that Joe Biden has to get approval from his Congress yeah. <laughs> to give us uh, all this kit for the for the I'd nuclear submarines. <laughs> but the Albanese government can commit us to to this without you know. Well, is Parliament going to get any input into so that? You're, and should
1: you're, it? You're, you're, dr- you're doing a contrast between the Westminster system of, of parliamentary democracy and the model of uh, Congress and President, a, a Republic model, which are quite different in the way that the power is vested in the Congress to check the President much different than the fact that we have their Prime Minister
0: and our Ministers that are elected representatives of the Parliament as well. That's, now, w- that's why they're different, <laughs> but should a Westminster system have, uh, that's have a more good input question. into yeah, into that, into That's a good question.
1: Project. That is a really good question because, um, okay, so first of all, my bias is the fact that I'm not on the executive, so I'm always going to argue that the Parliament should have more power and more engagement. I think the Parliament plays a really important part in our system um, with, you know, the independent judiciary, the executive and the Parliament, these are the sort of, big three uh, pieces of our system under our constitution that check each other and balance each other, frankly, um, and, and protect minorities and all, that, all the rest of it. So I think, yes, on principle the parliament should be engaged more in that discussion, that engagement, but also um, it should be said that the parliament, the parliamentary role largely is legislative, is to pass laws. So through that context, when we're looking at legislative reform, those debates can happen, those choices can happen. But that's where you see the distinction with the executive that makes decisions on policy or elected as a government to make decisions on policy and then execute those decisions. Parliament doesn't have that function of executing effectively. We do have um, committee systems that are very robust, like I'm the chair of the Intelligence Security Committee It has a lot of responsibility with respect to our intelligence and security agencies, but not operational uh, powers. And you, you noted the Congress there, it's a very different system because the Senate, the US Senate Intelligence Committee, for example, actually has oversight over some of the operational um, projects or what do you want to call them, the actual operations of the various intelligence agencies in a way that we don't. It's a very different system. Um, we're actually going through looking at obviously the, um, the, the oversight powers of, of, of our committee and, and where we are doing our job and how we can do it better, and, and I think that's an important part of uh, the parliament's role. I would think, though, that the executive still retains the power in the Westminster system to, to execute policy. When, if you can't really have parliament starting to execute policy, our, our job as parliamentarians is to debate laws and come to a conclusion about p- passage of law. Mm-hmm.
0: You were quite critical of Paul Keating for being willfully blind about the military build-up by China, uh, but he also argued at the National Press Club that, you know, even if you think China is a risk, that nuclear submarines wouldn't be the right solution anyway. Do you think he was off the mark about that as well? Uh, Well, I mean, the short answer is yes, but I I will preface this by
1: saying, you know, Keating is a hero of mine and I have great respect for him. He was a great Prime Minister and all of his achievements as Prime Minister can never be you know, taken away. Um, w- when you talk about his, his his strategic analysis, he does downplay, when I say he's willfully blind, he does downplay the change strategic environment. Um, he argues that it's more benign than it actually is. All of the evidence before him is quite clear. The militarisation of the South China Sea, um, the economic coercion that we've seen, you know, the, the, the other uh, aggressive behaviours um, to diminish... You know, international the international rule of law, um, the human rights issues when it comes to um, Xinjiang and um, Tibet, uh, the suppression of democracy in Hong Kong. That's all happened in the last five years. I don't think any um, analysts can can you know hide from that. Yet he does downplay that to the extent that he thinks um, that is not really you know an import into that changed strategic environment. The fact is, it is not the benign environment of the '90s. It is a volatile strategic environment. There is a contest between authoritarian regimes and democracies around the world. In fact, some democracies that are being undermined from within There's some illiberal democracies, frankly, we've seen that, um, you know, you could even argue the Trump administration was, was, was sort of in that category because they undermined some of the, the trade framework um, of international law. Um, and so with respect to his argument about the submarines, with all that sound and fury, Paul, not you, Paul, the other Paul, Paul, all the sound and fury of Paul Keating. In the end, when he was asked by Laura Tingle, what should we do instead of the nuclear submarines? His answer was, oh, we should have 40 to 50 Collins-class submarines. Now, let's set aside the cost implication of that, of of investing in a diesel submarine for the next 30 30 years. The difference in capability is stark, um, which has been outlined by a lot of people. the, 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 the Virginia-class submarines and the SSN AUKUS, which will be built in Australia with the UK and and the US, uh, when they come out, will have capability that far outstrips uh, the Collins-class. But why do we need that capability? So this is the other question. So let's let's talk about this
0: cost. He he was arguing, was trying to pen China in over there rather than keeping uh, more submarines to to prevent, you know, a land invasion over here. No,
1: but this is is kind of... You know that old saying that, you know... um, Amateurs do strategy and um, professionals do logistics. We can play around in that sandpit, but the the reality is this: defence capability. Defence capability. Why do we want a stronger defence capability? It is not a to propel towards conflict. It is not for warmongering purposes. It is not certainly. Um, because we want a, you know, an arms race. It's to deter. It is to deter. Mm. And why is that important? Because that deterrence, our contribution to collective deterrence now in the region, is doing what? It's making adversaries, whether they be state actors or non-state actors, frankly, because there are many non-state actors that, that attack our systems as well and disrupt, is to make them think twice about um, undermining um, international law, undermining human rights, undermining the trade and security frameworks that benefit Australia you know, the fact is we're a trading nation. We rely on a system or an international or a normative international framework that allows that countries abide by so that we can actually trade with each other, which goes to our prosperity. That's the kind of world we want to live in. It's also a world in which might is not right, where a large country can just invade a, a smaller country with no consequence. So that's what we're trying to deter. We're deterring the conditions for conflict and confrontation. And see, so on the other hand, what I thought was sort of Um, with Keating was that when he went and attacked our foreign minister and kind of downplayed the achievements of soft power through diplomacy, because this is the other part of it, Mm. you can do really good diplomacy and an independent foreign policy from a position of strength. People forget that, you know, when they say to me, oh, why can't we have a more independent foreign policy? I'm like, I agree. Like for decades, we have sat back and relied on the US to be the security guarantor of the region. And, you know, maybe spent one, 1.2, 1.5% of GDP on defence, which has allowed us to do what? Spend on healthcare and education and and everything else for Australia to have such a a great standard of living because the Yanks basically looked after everything. That world, we don't live in that world anymore. We actually have to make a contribution to what is is a much more volatile strategic environment. And you can do that with a strong defence capability that deters adversaries, makes them think twice, before they decide to use force to achieve their strategic ends. Right. Now you could, we can have an argument about what that investment should be and what you get out of it, and that's a technical argument about submarines and what they do and how they do it, and whether it's worthwhile investing in that. But it should be noted that when the media gets all you know hyper excited about three hundred billion plus, so over this is 50 a figure. years. It, it, yeah, it's out past twenty fifty. Yeah. If you took any line item in the budget, you'd be looking at. Uh, you know, tr- a trillion dollars or more. It's actually 0.15% of the defence budget of, of on GDP. It's about 10% of increase in the de- defence budget mm-hmm. for that investment. And it's also investment in infrastructure, um, workforce, retraining, skills, the whole lot, which the PM and the deputy PM have talked about a fair bit as well. But we do have to, as a nation, dis- discuss the strategic choices that we have. Um, so the last thing I'll just say about that, though, is... Um, when Keating talked about using the, um, you know, buying forty to fifty Collins class, now my dad gave me uh, his nineteen seventy seven Tirana in nineteen ninety one when I turned eighteen, um, showing my age, and had already done four hundred ninety five thousand kilometres. I'm not still driving
0: it today. I think it was I think it was forty <laughs> or fifty conventional, not not second hand, and it's the Virginia class that that might have the uh, the second hand uh, used label attached to them, but. Um I wanted to ask, uh, commentators have invoked Iraq during the AUKUS debate. You know, the, the concern is that uh, 20 years ago, we signed up to a war based on false uh, intelligence mm. from the US. And what's to stop us getting uh, too closely hitched to the US strategy in the Indo-Pacific and ending up at war in our, in our region?
1: Well, there's a couple of parts of that question to unpack. The first is this assumption that by engaging in a tripartite or AUKUS uh, um, capability uh, agreement, that somehow that's a strategy. It's not. Okay, Australia has its own foreign policy strategy and its own defence policy. In the sense that, you know, when people say, "Oh, you're joining AUKUS, you're you're you're, you're giving over your strategy to the US," it could not be further from the truth. It actually allows us. To, from a position of strength with our defence capability, engage in diplomacy, and that is exactly what Penny Wong has done. Um, you know, in 10 months, she has reset relationships with every Pacific country make us the partner of choice with them, but on a on a, on a basis of, of respect, not paternalism like the previous government, not arrogance like the previous government, but engaging them on issues that matter, like climate change, on cultural exchange, on economic relationship, That's- on defence uh, cooperation. That's real foreign policy. And Keating was way
0: out of line by criticising the foreign minister. That's Australia and the Pacific, but what about Australia and the US? Is there not an expectation that we would join in a conflict, the... that this nuclear submarine is designed to deter, but if it doesn't work out that way, we'll de- be drawn in? Well,
1: first of all, the decision that we were talking earlier about, any decision uh, an Australian government makes, and it could be any government at any point in time in the future, is up to the Australian government, Yeah, whether we engage or deploy forces in that. But by improving our defence capability, that does not tie us into or, or force us into making any or pre-decisions, pre if you like, at all. It just gives us better capability and more advanced capability so that we can um, add to that collective deterrence so we can avoid confrontation, avoid conflict. And the di- diplomatic work that I was talking about, it was not just the Pacific because it's been across Southeast Asia and it's been with China as well. We've the first time in four years where we've had a meeting with the, with the Chinese... Uh, foreign minister uh, and with the defence minister. That hasn't happened for four or five years.
0: I asked Mr Keating about that and he called me uh, naive to think that that would make any difference, the, the slightly better uh, uh, relations with China. but
1: um... well, Why would he say that to you? You got off a bit scot-free because other journalists copped it a bit harder, I reckon. <laughs> but, um, but I think he, like, why is that naive? The whole point is to engage with China uh, and avoid the conditions that would create confrontation. And we want to have an economic relationship with China. We want to avoid confrontation. But but there's no mistake that after some of these capability decisions are announced, for example, eighteen months ago, China, uh, after the first AUKUS announcement, when when the shadow cabinet uh, uh, also um, went through and agreed to AUKUS, um, China pushed a, a member of the CPTPP the trade negotiation. So when you're when you're coming from a position of strength, it does lead to options that are diplomatic, based on trade, and so on and so forth. I think the... um You've got to see it in in the sense that it's not just about defence. It's diplomacy. It's development assistance. It's defence. It's it's the three Ds really a statecraft. that so,
0: they have to combine. And so I guess we need to have a culture of independence from the US. And you don't think that buying the submarines affects that? You've got to... what kind of car do you drive, Paul? Uh, Toyota. Are you Yaris? are you
1: are you going to do everything that the Japanese? CEO of Toyota tells you to do no. uh, well,
0: but, but I don't. I don't. Other countries can make engines. I, I think it's pretty unique a uh, reliance on on them in terms of being able to operate the. Do you know how much, our, with.
1: how much of our how much of our defence capability we buy? We buy systems, uh, technology. Uh, we import from all parts of the world. That does not mean that operational control resides in the country or the vendor.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Um, a week ago, we could have said, you know, I'll. Oh, Paul Keating hates it, but, you know, it's just him. But now it's Paul Keating, Gareth Evans, Doug Cameron, Peter Garrett, Kim Carr, Bob Carr, Josh Wilson, who this week became the, the first sitting Labor MP to express um, some doubts. Was was Keating's read that the Labor membership is going to hate this when they find out about <laughs> it? Was he right? And, and where do you think this is going? Do you think opposition will, will grow or die down? I think it's actually a good thing, by the way, that we are having a debate. I actually think that's
1: important in our democracy because a lot of people are complacent about the, these things out of sight, out of mind I don't want to you know think about it actually it's, it's good to be able to engage in a discussion about our choices going forward um, and because it does affect our, the future generations and, and Australia's future really in the region our place in the world um, so I think there's a there's a there's a benefit in that of, of luminaries like these you know former foreign ministers and ministers and prime ministers uh, putting out their views uh, I think that should be welcome frankly they're entitled to those views. I don't have to agree with them. I agree with some things that people say. I, agree, I, I can disagree with others and, and, and base my argument on a rational response and argument. Um, Josh, for example, is, is a great friend and colleague of mine. I mean, just to be clear, he's raising issues around proliferation and our work with the IAEA. And he's entitled to do that. That's up to him, you know. And and you know the response to that, for example, is the Director General of the IAEA was here last year, went through in the fine tooth comb our verification and our safeguard mechanisms, and that the fact that we would be compliant with the, our obligations under the NPT. And it's worth repeating again because you know people don't know all the details. This is about nuclear propulsion, not nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. It's a sealed reactor, which for twenty five years. Um, there will be decisions around what happens to it after that, but it's the same decisions we're making too on other nuclear wastes with respect to medical uh, um, equipment and so
0: on uh, that come out of Lucas Heights or, or uh, need to be stored or, or, or moved or whatever it might be. So it- there... Do you think members will go along with it in the same way that MPs have, though? Like, it, it... Are you mean the Labor Party membership? Yeah, the Labor Party well,
1: membership. Well, it's a, sort of a tight old term, but it is a, a broad church or it's a it's a diverse group of members. Like people, every individual have, have their views. I, I don't know what polling is being relied on to assume what the Labor Party membership View is on AUKUS, for example. And I haven't seen any polling myself. I talk to a lot of members. I talk to a lot to a lot of my community, and people have varying views on this. You know, some talk about well, we should have been looking at the French boats or uh, Japanese, or uh, th- th- that's a good. It's good to have a debate. Or you know, some people don't want us to to increase the defence budget. That's that's entirely acceptable to have that conversation. Um, My view is that we do need to have some defence capability that gives us the opportunity to deter, um, you know, the possibility of conflict and confrontation and to to protect that that international rule of law, which has served us so well. And I think this is the important way that we do this. Mm -hmm.
0: Moving on topics now, you're one of the parliamentary friends of Julian Assange. Um, we know uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has said that he's raised his case personally with the US government. How do you think that's going? Have you got a progress report from the parliamentary <laughs> well, friends?
1: I, I, on that friends, Andrew Wilkie has done a power of work in this space as well, many other members of Parliament, right across the board, crossbenchers, independents, minor party members, Labor and Liberal, National. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, look, I just for, for transparency sake, I've engaged quite a bit with Julian's family members his dad a couple of times but certainly his brother Gabriel who's kept me informed and I've you know tried to do some things behind the scenes which is best not to you know talked about on radio is is a radio or podcast it's Pod. like a podcast um but but my my motivation there I think is just to explain it. I'm a strong supporter of that fundamental principle of um, a free press um, which you'd appreciate as a journo. um and so, so that's the sort of context uh, of Julian, with respect to Julian's case. Um, you're right, the PM has said enough, like this has gone on too long. Um, and the other thing that is really important to note is that in an era where I was saying earlier that democracy is under threat and everything that democracy means, which includes a free press and freedom of expression, um, and it's under constant threat by authoritarian regimes and, and constant disruption, if you like, that freedom of the press is critical. That's that's my view. And the Assange case is kind of sort of in the middle of that to some extent. Um, and the ability of the press to hold governments to account, to hold us as parliamentarians to account, to question and to, to get the transparency, shine the light is, is, is for me really, really important. So sometimes we'll make mistakes and you'll expose that and that's what you should do. Sometimes you'll call out you know, decisions and whatever it might be. So that's a really important part of our democracy and, and I, that's sort of the basis of...
0: That's why your heart's mm. in it, but uh, h- how do you think it's going? Look, I think there's been some progress.
1: Um, we did a, a message direct to President Biden as a group um, calling on him to drop the charges. Um, so, you know, the, you know, and so, um, and I know... Look, every consular and other types of diplomatic support are being provided as much as possible. The Attorney-General has been very, very outspoken about that um, as well. Um, this is working through the US system as well. So that, uh, this is a decision that is both White House and Department of Justice.
0: So, Is part of the problem that um, he's fighting extradition, he, he won't go to the US and plead guilty, there's a school of thought that says that he should... He should do that and then get pardoned rather than try and fight the system. I wonder if you have a view about that, about whether that's what the US w- will require yeah, well, in order I, to show clemency I, to him. Or... I
1: don't think he wants to go to the US. I think the, 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 the family has said and, and the, the supporters have said that he wouldn't, you know, be, he wouldn't want to do that, frankly. So the, the effort has been made to try and um, drop the charges so that he's not forced to be extradited, right? Um Look, I don't know, this is a really hard one, Paul, because it's one of those sort of unique cases that's very, it's very complex in, in many respects. Um, you know, if, you know um, the other um, person got a pardon um, from President Obama and that's what I think supporters of Julian are seeking, a pardon from, well, maybe not even a pardon, but certainly to drop the charges and then that would be a pathway out. Um, But you'd have to ask the family whether they thought that was an option of going and and facing trial in the US.
0: Hmm. There was some debate this week in Parliament about banning Nazi symbols. Uh, Peter Dutton said that he asked the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security to look at this in 2020. Uh, And Attorney General Mark Dreyfus he said he's asking his department to look at it. Is that something that you think is likely to come back to your committee soon?
1: It may. um uh, I, I wouldn't say no to looking at that, but we do have a very intense workload. We're looking at the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme, Temporary Exclusion Orders, you know, the IGES Bill, which is the Inspector General of Intelligence Services, terrorist listings. It's a very, very full deck of work uh, to review legislation, statutory review, bills. You know inquiries on radicalisation that may come back to us as well, um, but again, if that does come to us, we'll do our uh, due diligence and our work in, in in looking into that. I know that the, the Victorian state government is moving in that direction. Um, you know, and and take off my hat as chair as a as a Labour member, you know, fully support the premier when he says there is no place for Nazis um, in our society. Um, unfortunately, there are there is a growing number of right wing, far right wing. Uh, groups and activity, which is deeply concerning. Um, and these groups, just to be clear about this, no one's under any illusion that banning the Nazi salute uh, is going to resolve this problem in the, in the medium to long term, because there are deeper structural issues here. The rise of the far right, whether it's in Australia or other democracies, you know, without going into great detail, but there's socioeconomic uh, issues, there are inequality issues, and um, radicalization of young people to those violent, hateful uh, uh, ideologies of, of, of fascism. Um, and remember, this is an ideology that um, was responsible for um, killing six million Jewish people, millions of others based on their identity, handicapped people, um, disabled people during the time, um, gay people. Um, Uh, People of different ethnic uh, backgrounds, people of faith who were objectors to the Nazi regime, it is a terrible ideology that killed millions. And um, these groups now, the neo-Nazis, they manipulate, um, they manipulate um, uh, issues if you like, to try and, and they pick on minorities. Um, and this is, we've got to be aware of the way they operate in that sense. Um, and I think it's really important that governments uh, address the sort of core issues here. It starts with education as well, really important. You want to prevent radicalisation at an early age where young people are captured by these groups and, and go into into that little, that rabbit hole, if you like. Um, and as I said, the, um, the intelligence security agencies have have noted publicly that um, this is one of the largest threat threats that have risen over the last couple of years.
0: You, you mentioned manipulating issues. Um, we saw last weekend in Melbourne uh, the, the Nazi salute being uh, used by a subset of attendees at an anti-trans rights rally in Melbourne. You know, what's going on there? Why were they attracted to that cause or or, or want to associate themselves well, with that cause?
1: I think if you, you've got to go back to first principles on political activism or protest, right? If you are, if you, you know, why are you there? Why are you protesting? If you're there because you want to push for a fairer vision of society uh, around anti-discrimination, justice, social justice, particular cause, but if you're achieving the opposite, you really gotta ask is and if your attempt at civil dialogue through protest is one which attracts neo-Nazis to your your protests, you've really gotta reassess your approach, don't you? Look, like I'm I'm very supportive of the right for free uh, you know, to protest and freedom of association. This is a right we should not take for granted. In many countries in the world where you cannot protest. That's a really important right. Um, but you really gotta question um uh, when when neo Nazis are attracted to that protest, what what your what your approach is?
0: What do you think about the categories of ideologically and religiously motivated extremism? I know there was a lot of debate when uh, the terminology changed yeah. about moving away from the descriptor of right wing extremism. Uh, you, you did mention the far right uh, particularly being on the rise. Do, do you think that those terms? understate the threat from a particular section of politically uh, motivated violent extremism on the far right? This whole debate around uh, terminology is a very uh, you know, uh, complex
1: uh, debate because how you um, label something is actually quite powerful and important, but also labels uh, and terminology can be limited. It's hard to capture everything or capture the different things. So people use different terms. Some people say far right. Some people are, as you said, um, religiously motivated, ideologically motivated and so on. Um, Part of the, the, the religious, on the religious side of things is because if you just use the term Islam, then, you know, people you know the, the the assumption there is that you know you're talking about a particular religious group. I mean, you could have to do it for all the other religious groups as well. You start going down a rabbit hole as well. On you'd have to name them differently all the time. So religiously motivated was sort of flowing from that. Um, look, I, I think the. Um the, the complex bit about the far right or the, the extreme right or neo-Nazi, I mean, you could say things like fascist. Um, that kind of covers quite a lot of <laughs> groups, the white supremacist groups and, and so on. But it's a, it's a difficult one. It's a curly one. Um, more importantly, though, Paul, I think the, the impact on our social cohesion from these groups, the way that they manipulate issues, pick on minorities, whether they be Jewish or Muslim or, or trans communities or... or, or uh, LGBTQI plus communities broadly, or ethnic uh, ethnic minorities, migrants, is really disturbing because what it does is it really it, it, it seeks to sow division and hatred, and rip the community apart. Uh, and, and tries to destroy our social cohesion. I've, you know, for a long time fought against this. I've been a Victorian Multicultural Commissioner. I've supported that, that the strength of our diversity as a nation. I've experienced racism firsthand. Your listeners can't see it, but I'm a person of colour, you know, Egyptian background. I've experienced racism directly. Living in Australia, Growing up in the 70s and 80s was diff- very different than now. Um, I actually even remember uh, a confrontation between a lot of the sort of ethnic groups and, and some skinheads in the 80s. So, you know, that, that was uh, back in the 80s, there was a lot of that cycle going up and down of fascist groups and so on. Um, so this is personal as well, uh, and I really want to make sure that we do everything we can to try and unify um, the community and accept the difference and the diversity that we have as a strength of our society.
0: You mentioned a few references to your committee about radicalisation. W- what is the committee's work in terms of combating ideologically motivated extremism? Like, if- um, there was an inquiry that the 46 Parliament, the committee was under,
1: uh, was was going through on radicalisation and extremism, which may it's up to the minister whether they re refer that to us. That's, it's their call. Um, but if they do, we'd be looking at continuing that inquiry with with public hearings and engaging with stakeholders and coming up with recommendations for government to deal with those issues. Um, And that could be right through the policy gamut as far as the recommendations go with, and I don't want to preempt it because I haven't even finished it but or started it, really, or restarted it, but looking at education, looking at, um, you know, community engagement, looking at, you know, the way that security intelligence agencies engage with communities as well is really important, um, and the importance of this to our identity as Australians and who we are. The, when we were talking earlier about those groups, let's call them those groups, those extremist groups, mm. um... All of them have one feature in common, which is that they seek to divide by identity, right? And 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 that is destructive, at its core. Uh, and they will use violence to do that, and so on. We're we're pushing back against that with a with a, a concept or a view of our society that is united, or that accepts diversity, not just tolerates it, but embraces it as as really important part of who we are. What does it mean to be Australian? I struggled this with, with this growing up. As a migrant with a migrant background, people are telling me to go back, you know, the old go back to where you came from. I'm like, mate, I was born in Melbourne. Like, where am I supposed to go? Mm. You know? Um, so, you, if you're a migrant, you constantly question who you are and your identity, and you don't take for granted being Australian. I love being an Australian. I'm proud of being an Australian. I think it's a great privilege to be a representative in, in our parliament, in our democracy, to represent my constituents and a very multicultural community. In my electorate of Wills, you know, some 60% are from other parts of the world or have a parent from another part of the world. So, you know, we should never take that for granted. But there is a question about Australian identity and who we are going forward. And we should engage in that.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that might be all we have time for. I'm not sure if we can solve all the world's problems, but we have. I certainly understand them better for the benefit of that conversation. So thank you very much, Peter. Thanks, Paul. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. The executive director is Miles Martignoni. The Canberra team will be back with another episode of Australian Politics next week. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news.